As many of you know, I went to a Methodist seminary, Wesley Theological Seminary here in D.C. It was a wonderful experience for me with a pretty impressive level of socioeconomic, racial, age, and theological diversity, an extremely dedicated faculty, and students who were serious about committing their lives to the service of others. Of course, there were challenges, too, there, as I negotiated what it was like to be a non-Christian in a majority Christian environment, and more generally, as I grew into religious leadership and explored what that meant for me. But in general, it was the right place for me, the right place to learn and change and come into my own as a religious leader. And then they started praying. There is a lot of praying at a Methodist seminary, it turns out. At the beginning of classes, in small groups, among friends, before meals. When I first started, I was taken aback by all the praying. And I will admit that I found the language difficult. But I felt that having chosen, after all, to attend this school, I was really a guest in a different faith environment. And after a few weeks, I realized that if I left, left off the last sentence or so of the prayers that were being shared, they were actually really very meaningful to me. They spoke often of our connection to each other, our concern for those in the class, our hope that they would have safe travels home, our care for the larger community and the world. The people praying, whether they were students or faculty, used language that was true and meaningful for them. When I was asked to lead a prayer, I used language that was true for me. We learned from each other, and we were grateful for being in community together. And that worked for me. But the whole idea of all that prayer, of taking time to pray before meals and upon waking and sleeping, got me thinking. I heard from friends at seminary about their prayer practice, about the ways that they took time out from their day to reflect, to read, to be quiet. Many of them used no words at all in their prayers. They just sat in silence and tried to listen. And in fact, I took a whole class on that kind of prayer. It's called contemplative prayer, which asks, asks practitioners to be silent for 45 minutes, an hour, to release themselves from thoughts and worries and to sink into a kind of awareness and unity with the world. At my seminary, it was taught within the Christian tradition, but contemplative prayer has resonance, of course, with the Buddhist practice of sitting zazen, with Quaker meetings, and with religious and secular forms of meditation. In all of these forms, it calls for quiet, for listening, for silent awareness, and ultimately for a kind of losing oneself in the moment, a letting go of all but the absolutely immediate. Practitioners find it brings a sense of heightened awareness, of mindfulness, and of peace. I was terrible at it. I got distracted. I scrolled through mental to-do lists. I fussed in my seat. And then I worried that I was obviously doing it all wrong, and that distracted me even more. 
What kind of religious leader could I ever be? I couldn't even sit still for 20 minutes. I must be choosing the wrong practice, I decided. Many of my colleagues at seminary engaged in Lectio Divina, or scripture reading, on a daily basis. I decided that maybe reading poetry was the right fit for me, and I tried that for a while. I had an idea, too, of taking tea every afternoon in some kind of reflective manner, which is sort of like the British version of spiritual practice. (laughs) But the truth is, nothing really stuck, and I was left feeling as though I had no grounding, no daily practice of silence or reflection. Well, so what, right? What does spiritual practice mean for us anyway? Is it even relevant for an ethical culture congregation? Joan Johnson Lewis, the leader of the Northern Virginia Ethical Society, our sister community in Vienna, Virginia, gave a platform address here in August where she talked about what prayer might mean for ethical culturists. I loved how she described what Felix Adler, the founder of the ethical culture movement, said about prayer. Adler, Lewis said, talked of drawing out the God that is our neighbor's best self rather than praying to a God in heaven. Joan Johnson Lewis went on to talk about service as the ethical culture equivalent of prayer, but elaborated that it needs to be a kind of reflective service and that we need to find a way to, to, as she puts it, say out loud what it is that we want for ourselves, for our fellow human beings, for the world in which we live. We need to cry out in anger, in anguish, in pain, in helplessness, sometimes in joy and celebration, sometimes to tell the universe and each other what it is that we most deeply want and need to change and to keep to make this world one in which all can grow together into our best and finest. I love Joan's articulation here of what prayer's purpose is and how we can fill that purpose in our congregations. It was a resonance with that purpose and understanding that it was our hopes, our laments, our dreams that were behind the prayers that allowed me to really appreciate and connect with the prayers I heard in seminary. But it doesn't quite answer the question about spiritual practice, at least not the kind that I mean this morning. Because while I agree with my colleague about this purpose of prayer, I'm also interested in the more personal aim, the more personal aim of practice. In fact, everyone seems to be interested in it. You can hardly pick up a magazine or a newspaper without seeing an article about the health benefits of meditation, which is really what I'm talking about here. Scientists have been studying the effects of meditation or deep relaxation on the brain for years and consistently find that it helps people to control impulses and emotions to have more of an even keel approach to life. A number of studies, including one done by researchers from Harvard Medical School and written up in Psychology Today in 2001, 
have used MRIs to examine the part of the brain engaged by meditation. According to that Psychology Today article, the researchers, quote, found that it activates the sections of the brain in charge of the autonomic, autonomic nervous system, which governs the functions in our bodies that we can't control, such as digestion and blood pressure. These are also the functions that are compromised by stress. Another study headed by Richard Davidson of the University of Wisconsin in 2007 found that meditation, quote, increased activity in the brain regions used for paying attention and making decisions, according to the University of Wisconsin-Madison News. So my friends in seminary who seemed calm and who paid attention well in class, well, they may have been benefiting from all that contemplative prayer they did, the Christian practice most closely associated with meditation. But of course, they weren't really engaging in that practice just to increase their brain's activity in the pain attention region. They were engaging in a practice that they found to be personally fulfilling because it connected them to the deepest roots of their religious belief, to their faith. And so what I'm interested in today is how we can find practices that connect us to our faith, to our beliefs. I was here with many of you on Inauguration Day, and I heard the whoop that came when President Obama mentioned non-believers in his speech. That phrase has been making the rounds among the ethical culture leaders on our listserv, and the general consensus, and one that I share, is that although we are excited to have had alternative religious and secular identities even mentioned by a sitting president in an inauguration speech, we're also taking the opportunity to talk about the fact that we're not really non-believers. We're believers, just not necessarily within the boundaries of traditional American religion. We believe in the inherent worth of each person, in each individual's capacity for good, and in our deep responsibility to help each other to live to our fullest potential. We have faith, as we say every Sunday morning, in human goodness. And I will tell you that sometimes, for me, that belief requires great faith. It's the faith that motivated, I imagine, Joan Johnson Lewis's articulation of our version of prayer, our need to say aloud our deepest longings for humanity. But hand in hand with that kind of affirmation, what in a more traditional religious movement might be called corporate prayer, something done corporately as a body, I see a need for us to individually reflect to find ways to honor our intentions and our hopes and our faith on a personal level. Which brings me back to those first months in seminary as I struggled to find a way to do that. You would think, as someone raised in the liberal religious tradition by a committed agnostic father and a Unitarian Universalist mother, that I wouldn't have a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts around a personal practice but you would be surprised. <laughs> I found I just couldn't shut off the voices telling me how it ought to be. I ought to be able to sit quietly. 
I ought to be able to connect with the deepest part of myself in no longer than three minutes. I ought to be able to achieve a sense of unity with all of humanity. No, make that all living organisms. (laughs) And I ought to be able to fit that in between getting dressed and drinking my morning cup of tea. Indeed, it took quite some time for me to realize that none of those things might be attainable, and even longer to come to some peace about that. What I did ultimately realize, though, is that each of us is different. Each of us is unique, and that our spiritual practices, our mindfulness practices, have to follow suit. It is perhaps no revelation to you to learn that I am a somewhat verbal person. (laughs) I may be very verbal, in fact. And what I discovered over those months of trying to find a practice that would work for me was that sitting in silence was so difficult for me that it had the opposite effect that I intended. Now, I don't mean to say that I couldn't eventually cultivate a practice of silence and that that practice might, in fact, be quite beneficial. But it wasn't where my life was, and in the end, I decided that was all right. Part of the aim of spiritual practice is to connect us with our deepest longings and to bring our attention and awareness to those longings and those beliefs. For me, that's often accomplished in conversation. Not just any conversation, but conversation that's intentional, reflective, and meaningful. I found ways to listen, too, to keep my mouth closed and my mind a little more open, a little more free than usual. I went through a phase of listening to a special playlist on my iPod whenever I drove around town, songs that spoke to me for whatever reason. As I recall, there was a lot of Sweet Honey and the Rock on there, a little bit of Alison Krauss, some Judy Collins. I would drive around listening to the familiar words, the musical phrases, and I'd find that I finished my time more centered, my mind clearer, my heart full of whatever inspiration I found that day in my favorite songs. These days, I listen mostly to Wheels on the Bus and the Wave Bye Bye song (laughs) by request of my daughter, but for a while, I really loved my driving meditation. And there are so many ways, really, to find that connection, to discover little moments of peace and reminders of our highest values. Mary mentioned that my mindful knitting class starts Thursday, an exploration of how needlework can provide us with the grounding in movement that we sometimes need to let our minds be still. We, as a community, all spend some time in silence together each Sunday during our meditation. And then we spend some time in thoughtful conversation during our community sharing. We also set aside time to greet one another. And although that can seem a little bit hectic, it's really our way of being intentional about human relationship, a way of honoring our values the value we place on coming together. That's a kind of spiritual practice, I think. Or if the word spiritual has been making you squirm all through my platform for the last 15 minutes, a kind of practice 
of awareness. That sense of awareness that we try to cultivate on Sunday mornings, it's one reason why you don't see me, you don't often see me applauding during platform service. Sometimes applause really is a response to being so moved that you've got to move yourself, that you've got to create some sound and show some emotion. And I like that kind a lot. But pro forma applause, when we clap because someone said something nice or a piece of music really was quite beautiful, but mostly because we feel we're supposed to clap at that time, that kind for me takes me away from the sense of awareness we're cultivating here. Our work to make Sunday morning a time of attention, of mindfulness. That idea of mindfulness is an important one, and it often gets thrown around in popular discourse. What does it really mean to be mindful, to be aware? How do we know if we've gotten it? John Kabat-Zinn, a doctor and professor who teaches mindfulness meditation, writes this in his book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. It doesn't take long in meditation to discover that part of our mind is constantly evaluating our experiences, comparing them with other experiences or holding them up against expectations and standards that we create. Imagine how it might feel to suspend all your judging and instead to let each moment be just as it is without attempting to evaluate it as good or bad. This would be a true stillness, a true liberation. He goes on, a non-judging orientation certainly does not mean that you cease knowing how to act or behave responsibly in society, or that any, anything anybody does is okay. It simply means that we can act with much greater clarity in our own lives and be more balanced, more effective, and more ethical in our activities. It seems to me that this kind of non-judging orientation is what we try to live by in ethical culture that it's connected to our deep belief in the inherent worth of each person. If we can find a way to look at people without the assumptions and thoughts we place on them, if we can see more clearly the potential that they hold within them, the precious worth they carry, then our interactions in the world would be different. My mother had cataract surgery recently, but only so far in one eye. And she described to me how she can now see, by closing first one eye and then the other, how her vision had been distorted, perhaps for years. Before the surgery, she knew that her doctors told her something was wrong, but she couldn't really put her finger on it. Now, she says she can see that the pre-surgery eye sees the world through a film of yellow, a slight tinge to whatever comes before her. Like cataract surgery, <laughs> mindfulness and awareness can lift the distorted lens through which we view the world and bring our attention to what is really there. Again, 
words from John Kabat-Zinn. Look at other people, he writes, and ask yourself if you are really seeing them or just your thoughts about them. Sometimes our thoughts act like dream glasses. Without knowing it, we are coloring everything, putting our spin on it all. But if we take off the glasses, maybe, just maybe, we might see a little more accurately what is actually there. And that's it in the end. All of these practices we engage in are intended to bring our awareness to what we hold as most important, our own sense of worth, our belief in the preciousness of every person, our feeling of connection to each other, honoring those values, paying attention to those values is part of what we practice when we come together on Sundays. I invite you to find a way to practice it at home, too, with your children, with your neighbors, with yourself. Whether you find it in silence, in a playlist on your iPod, in conversation with each other, may you find that the glass has lifted and the eye is free to see what lies beneath. Deep worth, great love, true awareness.